and keep that song and that commitment that we were singing about in mind as we move through the sermon this morning because it certainly is applicable to it. Last summer, not 2022, but 2021, Peggy and I had the opportunity to be at a friend's cabin in northern lower Michigan and to do a little bit of fishing. But we didn't really know the lake well. We'd been there once before. But one day we were out fishing in a boat that looked a lot like this one. But it was not on a day that looked like this one. It was pretty windy, not like yesterday windy, but windy enough that we found a place where the fish were biting, but the boat had no anchor. And so we had difficulty. I kept trying to pedal against the wind and keep us there, but it just wasn't working very well without an anchor. And I thought of that story this week as I was not only studying the passage we'll look at, but interacting with another book that I'm reading. And I was reminded that there are a lot of churches in our country that no longer have an anchor, that are drifting. In fact, after the first service, somebody came to me and talked about being on social media and seeing somebody post a list of churches that were affirming of a lot of the things that are against Scripture. You may have heard the term progressive Christianity. And though this is probably a somewhat crude, but I think fairly accurate summary statement, much of progressive Christianity is made up of people, of churches, that have sensed the prevailing wind of our culture and are adapting. They're denying key truths. They're denying things like the deity of Jesus Christ or the fact that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Denying the fact that He died in my place and your place to pay for our sins and, and many other truths that aren't popular in our culture. And they would say they're, they're doing it to reach people. My question is, to what are you reaching them? What are you reaching them with if you're denying essential truths? So while you and I, while we as a church must learn to adapt our methods, we can never adapt our message. We need to be relevant in how we minister and reach out to our culture while anchored to the truth. And so we are talking about this core value of truth-anchored relevance. And there's a fascinating story in Acts chapter 17. I'd invite you to turn there in your Bibles or on your electronic devices, whether you're here or you're at home watching us. In Acts chapter 17, verse 16, we begin to see the Apostle Paul demonstrate this core value of truth-anchored relevance. And so this morning, I'd like us to look at the story, and from the story, I would like to draw three conclusions that help us understand what this core value is and how we exercise it in our culture. But to begin to do that, let's back up one verse and look at verse 15 because it sets the context for the story for us. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Paul is on his second missionary journey. 
He has just been forced to flee from the city of Berea by riots, crowds, uprisings, whatever, persecution. And he goes without his companions to the city of Athens. It's an unplanned stop. And once he arrives there, the the people who've escorted him go back with that message for Silas and Timothy. And Paul is alone in Athens. And we know that Paul walked around the city, verse 23, we'll see that in a minute, tells us that. But he didn't walk around simply as a tourist to look at this great city. Instead, verse 16 tells us what went on in Paul's life, in his heart. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Paul finds a city saturated with idolatry. Athens had been a leading center of Greek culture, of Greek philosophy. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, names that many of us would recognize, were grounded, were rooted, lived in Athens. It was a center of government. Many of the principles of our own uh, republic come out of Greek thinking. It was a center of art and of math. But when Paul arrives in Athens, it's past its prime. It is still a cultural center, but it is also a center of idolatry. And in fact, there are about 10,000 people who live in Athens in Paul's day. And the historians tell us there were 25 to 30,000 idols in Athens. And just up the hill is the ancient 500-year-old Parthenon, and in the Parthenon are even more idols. In fact, one ancient historian says it was easier to find an idol than a man in Athens. It's just idol-saturated. Full of idols literally means smothered under them. That's what Paul sees. And Paul is greatly disturbed by what he sees. That word provoke doesn't mean he blew up, but it does mean his, his heart is, is heavy, that he is angry, he's stirred by what he sees. In fact, the word that's used there is used in the Greek Old Testament of God's response to idolatry. So Paul is echoing God's breaking heart over what he sees in this city of Athens. He's bothered by Satan's control over the hearts and the minds of the people in that city. And so Paul begins to minister in Athens. He doesn't go on a campaign to get rid of the idols, to smash the idols. Instead, he begins to minister the Word of God. Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. This was Paul's normal process. He would arrive in a city, he would go to the synagogue, and there he would teach and preach to the Jews and to the Gentile God-fearers, the devout persons. So he does that in Athens, but that is not Dr. Luke's focus as he records the account for us. Instead, Luke's focus is on what Paul did outside the synagogue, what he did in the marketplace. And in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there, he's ministering every day. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. 
So Paul is ministering to the common people in the marketplace, the agora, the place they would gather not only to shop but to talk and exchange ideas. But he's also talking to the educated, the elite, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Epicureans were those who believed that man finds his truth in his experience and that his highest good is pleasure. They were the materialists. They were the quasi-hedonists of their day. The Stoics, the other largest group of philosophers in that day, were on the other side. They believed that the highest good is to align yourself with the universe and what is happening in the universe. Because your course of life has already been laid out by the powers of the universe. And so pain is not good, it's not bad. Pleasure is not good, it's not bad. You just need to figure out what the universe is doing and align yourself with it. When I think of the Stoics, I think of the Vulcans in Star Trek. You know, they are very in control of their emotion. They're very logical, and they're seeking just to do what the universe has laid out for them. And so Paul is interacting with these two groups, and we'll talk a little more about them as we move on through. But the first thing we notice is that they call him a babbler, literally a seed picker, because they listen to what Paul is preaching, and it's foreign to them, and they think, well, he's taking a little bit of truth from here, and a little bit from here, and a little bit from here, and he's meshing it all together, and he's come up with this strange new teaching. In fact, they say he's teaching, seems to be teaching about two new gods that we're not familiar with, Jesus and the resurrection. And the reason they think the resurrection is a god, or really a goddess, the Greek word for resurrection is anastasis. And so as they listen to Paul talk, anastasis is a feminine noun. And so in their pagan thinking, they're thinking, okay, his male god is Jesus, and his female god is anastasis, resurrection. And he's got these strange ideas, but we want to understand what's going on. And so they bring him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus uh, was Eris's hill. Sometimes we call it Mars Hill. Eris was the Greek uh, name for that god. Mars is the Roman name for it. They bring him to what was essentially the education committee for Athens to evaluate him, to see if he is going to be allowed to continue to teach. Look at verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. So Paul is in an informal kind of a hearing. And then we get Dr. Luke's editorial comment. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. In essence, Luke is saying the real seed pickers here are the Areopagus, the Athenians, because they want new, they want novel, they want to hear new things. And so they're open to listening to Paul to a point. So here's the first conclusion. As we look at where Paul is, as we look at where we are, we live in a broken culture, and that should disturb us. Our culture is no less broken than Athens. Oh, we don't have idols of wood and stone and metal, but we have a lot of idols in our culture. 
the idol of pleasure, the idol of materialism, the idol of politics, the idol of sports, of entertainment, all kinds of idols that compete for our attention. And as you and I look around and we see a culture that is engulfed with broken homes, that's engulfed with rampant pornography, that is smothered under drug abuse and suicides and racial tension and violence, that ought to disturb us. It ought to pain our hearts. The attack on Speaker Pelosi's husband a couple weeks ago should pain us, as should the attacks that were thwarted against Supreme Court justices. What went on in U of M's tunnel a couple weeks ago between athletes reflects our culture. It should disturb us. The shootings, the, the multiple shootings that we hear about almost every day should disturb us. Not simply because it makes us uncomfortable, not simply because it causes us to wonder if we're safe, but because of, what, of what's at the heart of it. And Paul doesn't give us a hint in Acts as to what was so disturbing to him about a city smothered in idols, but he does, I think, give us a clue in 2 Timothy chapter 2 when he says, "...the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone." able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Why? God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth that they don't have. That they may come to their senses. He says they're not in their right minds. Their minds are captive. That they may escape from the snare of the devil. He's trapped them after being captured by him to do his will. So Paul looks at Athens and he says, here are a people that have been captured by the snares of Satan. And you and I can look around our culture and see a culture and people who have been captured by the snares of the deceiver. Why are there so many people who are in favor of Proposal 3? even though it will lead to more babies dying and to women suffering and to parents robbed of their authority, why are they in favor? Because they've been deceived. They've been captured. And that should disturb us. More than the proposal, it should disturb us that people's hearts have been captured by Satan. After all, why wouldn't you be in favor of things like that if you don't know God? Why wouldn't you think I ought to be able to live any way I choose if you have no relationship with the author of truth? And Paul looks around and that's what disturbs him in Athens. And it's what drove him to ministry. And it should drive us to ministry. It should drive us to vote on Tuesday. But more than that, it should drive us to share the gospel with people because only as hearts are changed is anything going to really change. It should drive us to be engaged with, with organizations like Alternatives of Kalamazoo or like the Gospel Mission or like Life Matters because they are ministering within the culture. It should drive us to ministry when we look and we see that we live in a broken culture and we're disturbed by that. Which then brings us to a second conclusion from this story. We must engage our culture so that we can point them to God. My response sometimes, maybe your response sometimes, is I don't like what's going on. I think I'll just pull back. I think I'll just withdraw from all of this mess 
And yet that's not what we're called to do. In fact, we are called to know our culture so that we can be relevant as we minister in our culture. We're called to be like Paul who walked around Athens and observed, who saw what was going on, and he's going to use that to be relevant, to minister. Look at what he does at the Areopagus, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. As Paul walked around, he observed. The word means he looked closely. He thought about what he was seeing. He thought about the culture, the brokenness of it in Athens. And then he takes what he saw, he takes what he has learned, and he uses it to reach out in a relevant way to them, to minister to them. And so he starts with, I notice, I perceive that you are very religious. Now, the old King James said you are very superstitious. Not a really good translation. Paul is not being derogatory here at all. He's also not really flattering them. In fact, when you were before the Areopagus, you were not supposed to flatter. Paul is simply stating truth. He has looked at all of those idols, including an altar to an unknown God, and he says, you guys are really into this religious stuff. And yet he points out their need in spite of their religiosity. He says, you recognize there's a God that you don't know, and I want to tell you about him. And Paul, in that way, begins to arouse their interest, to grab a hold of them. And in a few minutes, we're going to see he even quotes from their own poets that they would have known. He knew his culture, and he knew how to talk on their level. And we need to know what's going on in our culture, in our world. You know, we can't be like maybe we were when we were kids, and we'd climb into bed and pull the covers up over our head to hide from the monsters. We can't do that with the culture. We can't figuratively pull the covers up. We need to engage with our culture. Now, that doesn't mean that we watch and listen to and participate in all the garbage that's out there. We don't have to do that to know what's happening. We can observe. We can pick up bits and pieces and learn what it's like. It also doesn't mean that we manipulate our culture. Paul is not manipulating them. He is speaking truth to them. And so it is really important that we know our culture so that we can be relevant as we minister. But in doing that, we never surrender the truth. That's the critical component. You can know the culture. You can give in to the culture. But if you do that and you surrender the truth, you have nothing to say to the culture. The man who was a pastor for a number of years claimed to be a follower of Christ. I think his history since then demonstrates that he was a wolf in sheep's clothing and not at all one of Jesus' own. But on Oprah Winfrey's show a number of years ago, he made this statement when he was still a pastor. The church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago. Understand what he just said? He just said, this book is irrelevant. And if we keep quoting from it, 
will be seen as irrelevant. And he is so wrong. Because the Scriptures are the only truth that we can anchor to. And in fact, that's what Paul does. He approaches the Athenians sensitively. He approaches them with relevant terminology. But he points them to truth. He points them to a worldview that is rooted in Scripture. What's interesting is that he does that without even quoting from the Old Testament Scriptures because those wouldn't have meant anything to those Greek philosophers. Instead, he takes where they are and he begins to work in drawing them into the truth. And so he begins in verse 24 by saying, look, God created us. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. You know what he just said? That Parthenon you're so proud of up there? God doesn't need that. He doesn't live in that. He is Lord. He created us. He's the creator of all. The Epicureans would have said matter is eternal. We came into existence by chance. They were the evolutionists of their day. The Stoics would have said, God is in everything. Man is just part of a cosmic force, a cosmic energy. They were the pantheists, the new agers of their day. And Paul is saying, you're both wrong. Here's truth. God created us. And not only did He create us, He is the sustainer and the provider. Verse 25. Nor is He served by human hands as though he needed anything. All those temples, all those things you do in the temples, he doesn't need that. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is the sustainer and provider. He doesn't need your temples. He doesn't need your idols. In fact, the God who created us has a plan for us. He governs the world. He made from one man. Now notice, he doesn't name that man, but you and I know who he's talking about, right? Adam. He made from one man, from one blood, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Now he's just confronted the Greeks with one of their prejudices. They believed that they were way above, you know, whether they were came into existence by accident because matter is eternal or through the cosmic force. Whatever it is, the Greeks were up here and all the rest of the world, the pagans, the hoi polloi, they were down here. And Paul says, oh, no, no. God made us all from one man. And by the way, God determined the allotted periods of power of your Greek nation having determined the boundaries of their dwelling place. He put your country here. He gave them power for a period of time. In fact, Paul's saying He put you here. You who are here in the Areopagus to hear me today. You who are here in this worship center or watching online to hear this message. God put you here. God is sovereign. He has a plan for our lives and He is ruling over all. And He did all of that. Because God desires that we be in relationship with Him. He wants you to know Him. This unknown God that you're worshiping Greeks, He wants a relationship. So that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. 
yet He is actually not far from each one of us. A later philosopher, Blaise Pascal, said there's a God-shaped space in all of us that we're all seeking to fill, but only God can fill that space. But we're groping. We're seeking in the dark in our blindedness by Satan and sin for this God, and we're not finding Him. It's interesting that the word Paul uses, perhaps feel, comes right out of Homer's Odyssey. From a scene in the Odyssey where the hero and his crew are captured by a cyclops, and they manage to trick the cyclops and get him drunk, and then they blind him. And as they're trying to escape, the blinded cyclops is feeling around for the Greeks, and he can't find them. And Paul says to the Areopagus, you're, you're like that blind cyclops. You've been blinded by your sin, and you are feeling around for God, but you're not finding Him. And it's not His fault. It's because you've been blinded. He is actually not far from each one of us, Paul says. He can be known. Now, Paul doesn't tell them yet how. He's kind of hooking them, drawing them in. But he says, he's not far. You can know him. In fact, your own poets say that. And now he quotes from two of their poets. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. And Paul is quoting from Epimenides, a poet they would have known. And then he goes on, for we are indeed his offspring. And now he's quoting from a different poet, a man by the name of Aratus. So he's being relevant to them. He's speaking in terms they understand. He said, even your poets recognize that God can be known, but you don't know him. And then he confronts their idolatry. Being then God's offspring. If we've been created by God, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. If this God created us, how in the world do we think we can create Him or an image of Him? The idols you are making, Paul is saying, aren't helping you find God. In fact, they are replacing God, the one true God, in your thinking. And because of that, God commands us to repent for seeking idols instead of Him. The times, verse 30, of ignorance God overlooked. I always wonder if a little later when they reflected on what Paul said, those philosophers realized what that first phrase meant. Paul just called all of Greek culture the times of ignorance. You might be really brilliant, humanly speaking, but you are blind to God, and God has in the past not poured out His judgment yet, but now. Now, because we're on this side of the cross, now because Paul is confronting them with truth, he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because judgment is coming. Judgment is coming for our failure to worship the true God. The Epicurean said, man is headed just toward extinction. You die and it's all over with, so live any way you want. The Stoics said, man is headed toward being absor absorbed into the cosmic oneness. And Paul says, you guys are wrong. Man is headed for judgment. 
Because God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. He's talking about Jesus. And He says a day of judgment is coming. It's already been appointed for you for not knowing God. And it will come through the man God has appointed, and He's demonstrated that by raising Him from the dead. Jesus. Now, Paul sometimes gets criticized because he doesn't talk about the crucifixion. But I would defend Paul with two statements. The first is, we don't know that he didn't, because this is a summary of what he said. So, you know, I'm not sure how you get somebody raised from the dead without getting them dead first. So maybe he did talk about it, or maybe that was his next point. But we're going to see he gets cut off. Because remember, the Greeks don't believe in resurrection from the dead. They don't want it. They don't want a resurrected body. But he preaches it anyway. And he calls them to repent. He points them to the truth. See, we have to engage our culture so that we can point them to God, but never compromising the truth. What is fascinating, as you analyze what Paul has just done, he's just walked them through the whole meta-narrative of God through the whole of what we would call the Scriptures, because he started with creation and he ends with the day of judgment. So without even taking them to the Old Testament, which they would not have respected, he walks them through a biblical view of the world and he calls them to repent. And folks, we live in a culture that's not that far away from the Greeks in terms of lack of understanding of biblical truth. It's why Answers in Genesis is such a valuable resource in helping us know how we can take people back to creation to get them to the cross eventually. And ABWE has come out with a, a booklet that can be used as a Bible study, the story of hope that walks through all of the major events. Because you, in today's world, most of the time, you can't just walk up to somebody and say, you know what, you're a sinner and you need Jesus. Because they're going to say, what do you mean I'm a sinner? I'm not that bad. I haven't done anything. But why do you, who am I? You're nobody to hold me accountable. And Jesus, I've heard his name in swearing, but I don't know much more about him. And so like Paul, we need to meet people where they are and walk them through why there's a God who created them and they are accountable to him. And because they're accountable, they are sinners who are headed for judgment except for Jesus and the cross and the resurrection. It's one of the reasons we're doing some of the seminars we're doing on Sunday nights, even the one tonight that talks about technology and culture and the arts and how do we engage as Christians with our culture. We need to know what is happening in our nation in the arts and the sciences and the entertainment and technology, but we need to stand for the truth. Well, Dr. Luke wraps up the story with these words. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. They don't believe in it. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. He's been dismissed. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So you have mockers. You have some who put it off. And then you have some who come to know the unknown God in a personal way. 
And so the last conclusion I want us to draw from the story is don't be surprised by how people respond. We're in a culture that moves farther from the truth and sharing the gospel, witnessing gets harder and people are going to mock, but some are going to believe. And so we continue to be faithful in sharing the Word of God in a relevant way, but grounded in the truth. Truth anchored relevance is a core value of our church because we live in a broken culture and that should disturb us so that we reach out and engage them and minister to them in ways they understand so that we can point them to God and yet at the same time we're not respond we're not surprised when a bunch of people respond by rejecting the truth some of you maybe seated here maybe watching online don't know this god we've been talking about he's an unknown god to you pastor steve pastor jim pastor ryan that friend that brought you would love to sit down and talk to you about how you can know him through jesus And if you're watching online, we would love to have you call the office and set up a time to sit down with us so we can introduce you to a God who can be known because He loves us enough to give His Son to die for us. For those of us who know the truth, we need to stay anchored to it. Max Lucado, a Christian author, many of you have read his books, tells the story of going to New York City a little while after 9-11 and talking to his taxi driver, and his taxi driver said, I get lost all the time in the city now because the Twin Towers used to be my point of reference and I could look at them and I'd know where I was. But I don't have any any way I can know. I can't get my bearings. And I thought that describes our culture. They've torn down truth. They can't get their bearings. But you and I who know Jesus, this is our reference point. This is what we anchor to. And so truth-anchored relevance simply means that we are firmly grounded in the truth of God. And we call people to repentance and faith in Jesus as we share in ways they understand. We face the challenges of today with the unchanging truth of God. Let's pray. And so, Father, help us to do that in a day when so many are adrift, refusing to anchor to truth. Help us individually, help us as a church to stay firmly rooted in your truth and yet reaching out in relevant ways to those around us. Help us to be salt and light. Help us to be ambassadors for Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.